You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. What do the following movies have in common? The Rock, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, Armageddon, Lethal Weapon 3, Die Hard with a Vengeance, and The Hurt Locker. Perhaps your answers vary within the room of what your guesses might be. Each of these movies share something in common, and that is a scene by which the character must disarm an explosive device. The countdown clock is seen. The moment it's happening is about to take place, and it's a perilous moment. Cut the red wire, and it will stop. Cut the blue wire, and it will detonate, and everyone will die. Or is it actually cut the blue wire, and it will stop, and not the red wire? I'm so confused. Which one are we to cut? We've seen these scenes constantly, and yet we're drawn into them as if it's the first time we've imagined it in real life. The consequences are gigantic. Again, thousands upon thousands, perhaps even millions, depending on the explosive device being referenced in the movie, will lives will be saved, or perhaps that many lives will be lost. Coming down to getting this one single moment right. But friends, I would venture to say the book of Galatians is much like those movies except with even more on the line. Because we're not simply talking about detonating or or diffusing an explosive device that will cost the lives of many. We're talking about something even more fundamental, the gospel, the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ, to get it right, and countless people will be saved for an eternity. Get it wrong, and countless people will spend an eternity in hell. This is why the title of today's message is Life or Death, Getting the Gospel Right. I have to confess to you, as a kid, one of the things I loved doing was taking things apart. Now, for those of you who are engineers in the room, you're like, oh, me too. Uh, But I'm not like you. You know how to put things back together. I did not as a kid. I knew how to operate a screwdriver. That's about as far as I made it. And any time I found a screw, I would undo it with whatever size screwdriver I could find to work with that screw. I remember one time in particular taking apart a boom box. A lot of you won't even know that term. Others are like, yeah, that's my guy. A portable cassette player rested on your shoulder. Speakers that would make you go deaf. And I thought, man, that thing rocks. I wonder what's going on inside of it. And I took the entire thing apart. To this day, it's still in pieces, some trash heap, some landfill somewhere. Why? Because I didn't really take note of, nor was aware of how to put it back together, that it worked again. 
Well, unlike my childhood, here I am now in my adult years, having taken something apart in 25 pieces. That is the book of Galatians. Over the last 25 Sundays, we have taken it apart, but now we want to put it back together. We want to see the letter, because that's what it was, a letter from an author, a writer, the founding pastor to these people. And today, as we come back to the story of the gospel in the book of Galatians, we want to spend the next moments together putting the book of Galatians back into a single setting, a serving that you can see it and appreciate it and understand it and live in light of what it teaches. Because as we think about the gospel here, it is, as I said, tragic as to what will happen or not happen, what those consequences are. And if we think about this, because there's so much on the line, nothing less than life or death, we want to put it back together correctly. And that's why we come to this. If you want to summarize the book of Galatians, here's the summary. The true gospel of Jesus the Christ creates a new multi-ethnic family that is transformed by the Holy Spirit. That is a way to summarize the entire letter to the church and churches in Galatia. The true gospel of Jesus, the Christ, the Christ meaning the Savior. Christ is not Jesus' last name like mine is Bancroft, his is Christ. Christ is a title, the Messiah, the anointed one. The true good news of Jesus is that he is the Christ, and in him he creates a new multi-ethnic family that is transformed by the Holy Spirit. And in these coming moments now, we're going to see that unpack. Six chapters, they're going to answer for us three questions. Chapters one and two answer the question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? You can look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, and following, he is concerned that they got the gospel wrong. Look at what he says to Galatians. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now we'll stop right there. The question that seems perhaps in some of your minds a fair and reasonable question is, well, what makes Paul right and what makes them wrong? I mean, it's just sort of a competition of personalities. Paul had a chance to go first. After all, these are, if you'll notice at verse 2, look at what it says there, and all their brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So unlike the letter to the Ephesians, unlike the letter to the Thessalonians, unlike the letter to the Corinthians, a particular set of people in a particular city, one local church he's writing in those contexts, the book of Galatians is actually to different churches in a region of the Middle East, the Mediterranean area at that time known as Galatia. Well, what gives Paul the right to say he's right and they're wrong? 
I mean, after all, what seemed like it's happening here is Paul got the chance to go first. Then after he left, other teachers came and said, no, no, Paul's wrong, we're right. And now Paul is back saying, actually, no, no, they're wrong and I'm right. And you're like, what is this? Just sort of a, a petty theological debate. Can't we all just get along? Can't we all just mean well? Can't we all just sort of see people are trying to do the right thing and sort of grade them on a curve and say things like, bless their heart? Paul doesn't see it that way. What gives Paul this prerogative? Well, first of all, Paul was commissioned by Jesus. Go back to verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He is saying, here's my, here's my letter of recommendation. Here's my referral. You'd like to speak to my employer? Here's the letter I have to offer you. It's not some other Jewish rabbi that I'm a disciple of his. It's not some other group of people by which I'm from their school. I am citing no one less than Jesus, the Christ, God the Father, who raised Christ from the dead. So you might be thinking, well, what makes Christ the, the great authority? Well, because he was resurrected from the dead. In the same way that God the Father says in Matthew 4 at Jesus' baptism, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So in his resurrection, the Father raises the Son, and in that reality, he says, here is my Son, the resurrected Savior. Paul's gospel was on that commission of Jesus. Comes up again later, verse 12, look down to it. I did not receive it from any man, this gospel, nor as I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, verse 15, what does he say? When he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. So what gives Paul the prerogative? Well, first of all, he's commissioned by Jesus. Secondly, he's also confirmed by the apostles. He's telling the Galatian Christians, listen, if you're looking for other recommendations, you're looking for other reference people, let's talk about the pillars of the church. Let's talk about the, the forefathers, if you will, of the Christian faith. And so jump ahead as he starts to now cite the apostles. Look at chapter 2, verse 7, referring to these pillars, referring to these foundational disciples. He says in verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, verse 9, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised, meaning they confirm their witness. They confirm their message. Paul is commissioned by Jesus. He's confirmed by the apostles. And then you really want to see how committed he is? You talk about a fear of man test, talking about pillars. He's citing people like James and John and Cephas, which is another name for Peter. But, but, but Cephas, Peter backslides, if you will, to kind of use an old Baptist term. Look at what happens in chapter 2. Paul is now tested by Peter. How? He's tested by Peter's bad example. Look at verse 11 of chapter 2. When Cephas, meaning Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back. So when the Jews showed up, he drew back, separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, can you force the Gentiles to live like the Jews? So what's happening here is Paul's not just saying, listen, my message is commissioned by Jesus and confirmed by the apostles. He's even saying in humility, it's tested by Peter and a tragic decision he made. Now, it's not as if Peter compromised the entire ministry. Even we had the letters from Peter himself and we see his great testimony. But even in that moment, Paul says, I didn't waver. So then what is the gospel? If we, if we know that if you get it wrong, you're to be accursed, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, what, what is getting the gospel right? What is the answer to that question? What is the gospel? Well, look at ground zero, chapter 2, verse 16. This is the gospel ground zero. Verse 16, we know that a person is not justified, I mean declared right by God, not justified by works of the law, I meaning through obedience, but through Faith in Jesus Christ. It basically says that again a second time. So we also believed in Christ, Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Ground zero is that sort of epicenter. They, they sort of study it when things detonate, when there's explosions. That, that is the foundation by which everything rippled out from there. And Paul is saying, listen, in this single verse, if you want to learn how to communicate the gospel to somebody, memorize Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Make this your verse for the week. Make this your verse for the month. Memorize this verse because in this verse, he basically says the same thing twice. No one is declared right by God because of what they do, but only because of what they believe. And anyone who is trusting in what they do to be accepted by God will not be, but only those who believe in what God has provided in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, for those of you who are not Christians, this should be overwhelmingly good news. Because you have just been told by the Bible God's servant Paul has just told you, God offers forgiveness to you, not because anything you have or promise to do, only whether or not you believe Jesus is his son and surrender your life to him. Ask him to forgive you and say, I believe in Christ. My hope is in Christ. My forgiveness is in Christ. My joy is in Christ. My life is for Christ. God declares such a person righteous, forgiven, pardoned. That is gospel ground zero. I mean, the good news of how one is justified and declared righteous means that they are forgiven and in a right relationship with God. They are placed in God's family. This results in their life being transformed. This is why Paul would say in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, just a few verses later, I am a new creation in Christ. I've been crucified and I'm now alive and it's Christ in me. I mean, I've got the same name. I have the same DNA. You still recognize me as around the block, but you don't know me now unless you're with me for a reasonable amount of time to begin to see, oh, yo, you're not the same that I remember. Paul's like, I know, it's crazy. 
I used to kill people like me. And now I'm willing to die for people like me. New creation. It's not obedience to the Torah, to the law, to God's commands. It's through faith in Christ. It takes us then into chapters 3 and 4. It's, again, one long letter. He writes to them. Brings us to the second question. If the first one is, what is the gospel? The second question is, well, then who are the children of Abraham? Who are the children of Abraham? And you have to understand why this is an important conversation, because you've got to understand this church in this region of Galatia, these churches, has got a mixed group of ethnic people like we have here, but there's distinctly two different groups, kind of in a binary type way. There are the Jews, and then there are the non-Jews. There are the Jews, and then there's what they sometimes refer to them as the Greeks. There are the Jews, and what they sometimes refer to them as the Gentiles. There's sort of two groups of people, and what's happening is that in this church, after Paul has left, Jewish teachers have showed up who self-identify as a Christian, and after all, they say they're Christian. They must be right, because why would they call themselves a Christian if they're not a Christian? That's what many people think today. Wrong. And they show up and like, hey, congratulations, welcome to the family, but if you really are a part of the family, you would be circumcised like us. You're like, but I'm not Jewish. You're like, ah, but that's okay. You can be one of us if you're circumcised. And after all, Genesis chapter 17, any of God's people should be circumcised. All the males should be circumcised. And so you should be circumcised, you should obey the law, and that's how you know. And so it begs the question, well, wait a minute, who, who are God's people? How do, you, how do you know them? How do you identify them? I and mean, this is sort of like a, a massive ethnic adoption plan. A bunch of benevolent, compassionate ethnic Jewish people bringing in non-Jewish people as long as they agree and they pledge to promise to obey all the laws that they have themselves. Paul says, no, it's not what's happening here. You've misunderstood the entire time. God had a conversation with Abraham in Genesis 12, even before he's known as Abraham, he's known as Abram. And then he had a repeating conversation with him in Genesis 15. And Abraham believed. In fact, he says, you know what? Don't take my word for it. Let's listen to Abraham. So go to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed and crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing that with faith? A bunch of kind of redundant questions or rhetorical questions, and he gets to his chief witness on the witness stand. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He does not say just as Abraham obeyed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He says just as Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteousness. He's like, listen, if you're looking for an Old Testament character witness to this message, let's go all the way back to Father Abraham who had many sons and I'm just tempted to sing it right now. But I'll spare you that. But I might be marching. No, I'm kidding. The sons of Abraham are the ones who trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Galatians 3. Look at the next three verses. Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. It's on the screen there. For those of you who don't have a Bible with you, just look at the screen. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. In equal opportunity salvation, if you will. All ethnicities, all people groups. Verse 9, so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Well, the question that a lot of people would probably be asking, well, then why did we go through all that trouble of so much Old Testament law? Why in the world, if this is how God intended to Abraham, why did he give the law to Moses 430 years later? And why did the people of Israel have all these laws in the land and have the ceremony and the priests and the temple and the tabernacle and all of the pillar and the fire and all? Why, why all of that? Does that seem unnecessary? You would be not the only one to ask that question. It's a fair question to ask. Well, he answers it. Look at what he says in verse 19. Chapter 3. Well, then, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary, replying to Mo, referring to Moses, implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law contrary then to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteous would indeed, by be, would indeed be by the law. But verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Why then the law? Multiple purposes. We talked about this. We're in Galatians 3. I encourage you to go back. If you've missed that message, you hear this in more detail. But let me say in summary fashion, why did God give the law Several reasons. Number one, to be a reflection, a mirror, if you will, of the character of God. In the law, you see the holiness of God because in God, there is complete perfection. You see his righteousness. You see his justice. You see his absolute purity. Secondly, you have the law because the law guards us. It protects us. It's a, it's a, it's a teacher. It directs us and it protects us. It, it both instructs us as a teacher and as a policeman and it protects us. Hey, stop stealing each other's property. Hey, stop looking at each other with envy. Hey, you should honor your mother and your father. And all the parents said, amen. What, what's he doing here? He's helping a people. How to live with each other until Christ would come and fulfill the law, which is the third reason for the law, which is because it would make you see Christ is and has done what no one else in history has done, obeyed it perfectly. God sent his son to Mary, born a virgin. Therefore, Christ is without sin and in doing so is now then perfectly obeying the law that all those who put their faith in him through his righteous life, his sacrificial death and his convincing undebatable resurrection would be forgiven of their sins. That's who the children of Abraham are, Galatians 3, 7 through 9, all those who believe in the same way that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Which takes us to the third question. How do you know who the Christians are? 
What is the gospel? Chapters 1 and 2. Who are the children of Abraham? Chapters 3 and 4. Chapters 5 and 6. How do you know who the Christians are? You ever ask this question yourself? You ever ask this question of yourself? You wouldn't be the first person to ask that. That's exactly what they're doing on the, in these southern regions of Galatia. They're like, uh, who's with us? Who is with us? I know who says they're with us, but who's really with us? How, how do we know? How, how do we discern? I mean, United States of America has historically and continues, though the statistics are dropping, self-identify by majority as Christian. And you're like, that just seems off if that's true. It's not very encouraging if that's true. In fact, there's a lot of how some parts of the world sort of look at the United States like, yeah, that, there's your Christian nation for you. You're like, oh, uh, we don't claim them. Not self-righteously, but we're just saying we understand why you're confused. We're confused too. Whether it be entire sects of society, entire groups within humanity and nations, or whether it be actually family we're related to, people we're married to, parents that claim it, or children who identify as it, who, who actually is? I mean, this is a, a fair question. What Paul says in Galatians chapter 5 and 6, as he continues his writing to these churches, he says, listen, there's old humanity and there's new humanity. New humanity is like a new creation, as he would speak of this later in chapter 6. They're not hard to tell the difference. Old humanity pursues the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5. New humanity pursues the desires of the spirit. They're, they're driven by that. They're motivated by that. And they, they continue long beyond just a generic motivation, like a summer camp Christianity. They're good for a week or two, then they're back to living crazy. The sins that the law forbid are to be put to death, and they are, by Jesus on the cross. His life becomes their life, and he produces through the Spirit in them a new life by demonstration. And so he says the reality, chapter 5 and 6, is that they are indeed free. They're free from the law, but free to do what? Look at verse 13, Galatians chapter 5. Paul says, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Notice how he has to instruct how not to use their freedom. But through love, serve one another. What we're seeing here in the text is that the question is, if you self-identify as a Christian, how does your life tell us that that profession is actually who you are in your person? Now, remember what we said earlier in this part of the scripture. We said we have to be clear to differentiate between the difference between assurance of salvation and evidence of salvation. Christians wrongly look to the evidence of their salvation to find their assurance. Have I, have I not, have I, have I not, have I, have I not? And if you got enough in the register, you might feel like, I feel like I'm a Christian. Wrong place. You're looking to the wrong place. We're to look to find our assurance of salvation in a different place. That's in Christ. It's not have I done enough, it's has Christ done enough, and is Christ himself and his person enough? And the answer to that is an undeniable yes. 
Paul has resoundingly, repeatedly, emphatically said, Jesus is the Savior. Who he is and what he has done is enough. Do you believe in that? If you do, then you're saved. You're pardoned. You're adopted. You're free. You're a new creation. And that new creation will be manifesting itself in your life. Now, to others of you who are not Christians, you might be rightly, concerningly, doubtfully looking at some others who are self-identifying as Christians. You're like, you don't seem too Christian to me. Your sense of humor is just like mine. Your sense of worldliness and love for the passions of the flesh seems just like mine. You're giving yourself over to drunkenness or envy or materialism or greed or sensuality or sexuality seems just like mine. And I, I wonder if you're actually deceiving yourself or if I'm deceived, but I don't think I'm deceived. I don't think you're actually a Christian. And friend, if you've thought the way about people who profess are Christians, yourself not being a Christian, you'd probably be right to ask that question. But what do we see happens here? The Spirit produces, drives, directs, motivates those not to promise the world sinless people known as Christians, but to show the world repenting people who are known as Christians. As Martin Luther said in the first thesis of the 95 Thesis that he nailed on the church door of his church that he pastored as a priest in, in Wittenberg in Germany, that the life of the Christian, not the beginning part of the Christian life, but the life of the Christian is one of continual repentance. We put off the old man. We put on Christ. And so what are those things? Well, let's look back at them. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love. And notice how love is referenced repeatedly. I mentioned that earlier in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Use your freedom to do what? Through love to serve one another. Here we are again with Galatians 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Why is this important to recognize? It's important to recognize what it looks like to be living by the Spirit through faith in Christ. Here's what I would say to kind of bundle this together from six chapters broken down in three sections with these three questions. Those three questions again being, what is the gospel? Who are the children of Abraham? How do you know who the Christians are? But now let's take a look at the bigger picture of these six chapters and three things Galatians wants to teach us. Galatians taught us, number one, that we need to be aware of transactional Christianity. Be aware of transactional, quote-unquote, Christianity. Why do I say transactional Christianity? Transactional Christianity, in the words of Paul, is basically another gospel of which there is no other gospel. Transactional Christianity basically says, I, I barter with God. I transact with him. 
The Galatians believed they could transact with God to secure their identity, to guarantee their eternal security based upon what they would do. And in that case, in that context, what they would do would be obey the Torah, specifically being circumcised if they're male. And that's how they would claim their standing with God. But friend, that problem, though that specific temptation might not be true with the people sitting in this room, the mindset still is. Transactional Christianity is basically say, I can point, here's the key, to something that I have done to provide me with assurance of my salvation. Friends, when you do that, you remove the necessity for faith. The only faith you have is faith in yourself. And that's why some of your faith meters sort of go up and down, because you keep looking to the wrong object to place your faith in, to find your assurance in. Transactional Christianity presents a lot of problems for us. First of all, it distorts our view of God. It distorts our view of God. Why? Because it basically makes God fickle. He's happy, he's not happy. He likes you, he doesn't like you. You're in his good graces, you're out. And you don't ever quite know where you're going to be. Is he going to be just? Is he going to be merciful? Is he going to be like wrathful? Is he going to be gracious? I just don't know. And so what you do in a transactional Christian is you transact with God. You're like, you promise God to do better tomorrow or you point to God the things you did better yesterday. You're transacting with him. You find your security and who your identity in God is based upon how you perceive God. Uh, friends, let me just give you a practical way in which you can understand this at Grace Church. Maybe some of you know this, some of you do not know this. Uh, numbers of you are, are guests, are re- re- reoccurring visitors here. We're glad to have you. Hope and do sincerely pray that wherever you are in Miami, you'd be in a faithful gospel-preaching church where you're discipled well, shepherded well, cared for, e- equipped, and challenged. And we do pray for the churches, not just ours. So if you're here and you decide to commit to another church that's faithful, praise God. But one of the things that will happen for people when they're here after a certain amount of time is they will eventually say, hey, what can I do to help around here? How, how can I volunteer? I'm, I'm thankful. We're benefiting from people who are like rehearsing and there's people in the sound. You have things on the screen. The hair, people got here early, turn on the lights. There's volunteers in the children's ministry. Uh, elements were prepared for the Lord's Supper for you. You're just being served week after week after week. And people inevitably, sweetly, understandably, like, what can I do to do something? I, I too want to help. After all, you maybe came from a church where not soon after you arrived there, they put you into a volunteer role. Can I help in the parking lot, help with kids? What can I do? And here's our surprising answer to many people. Uh, nothing. And they're like, what do you mean I can't do anything? That's not judgmental. Oh, no, it's not judgmental at all. We're not judging you at all. We're actually quite loving you. Why, why won't you let me do something? Because we're concerned. We're concerned for you and we're concerned what you would think of God as if to say that somehow you might be tempted to barter with God based on what you do and or secure our love for you based on what you do. And that's just not how it is in the gospel. God loves you no matter what you do. He loves you because of faith alone in Jesus Christ, his son alone because of his grace alone. Grace, here's the deal, people. Grace is very uncomfortable. 
to our works-based relationships we have with each other. Because it feels like what? It's not fair. That's why they call it grace. Transactional Christianity tells you to get busy transacting, trading. And it starts to distort your view of God that you think God loves you because of what you do. And that's not true at all. So we say for a new person here, just be here with us. Talk with us. Let us get to know you. Get to know us. Find out more about the church. Continue to learn God's word. We, we give you that. We want to serve you in that regards. And then prayerfully decide if this is really the place that you want to commit. We don't want you to distort that. The second way this transitional Christianity can be a distortion is it minimizes the work of Christ on the cross. I mean, did Jesus need to go to all that effort, live those years sin-free, then go through the excruciating torture and then the overwhelming painful crucifixion and then resurrect from the grave? Did he need to go through all of that if you or I could add to that. If we could somehow offset the record, like, hey, I'm going to pay you back, God, for what you did for me. I owe you, so I'm going to pay you back. And in doing so, as Paul is basically saying in Galatians, if it really is about circumcision, then why did Christ need to go to the cross? It minimizes the work of Christ on the cross. Thirdly, transactional Christianity allows legalism to flourish. Why? Because legalism loves to declare winners and losers with the legalist, ironically, is almost always the winner. And others, sooner or later, are almost always the losers. Why? Because you're not doing what the legalist says you should do to earn your righteousness in their eyes. Legalism is fueled by proud self-righteousness all under the mask of the veneer of religious concern for God's word. Selectively copying and pasting God's word to judge other people for what they're doing or not doing, and yet missing the other text of the scripture that speaks to what they're own doing themselves. Transactional Christianity also sets us up for a constant emotional cycle of joy and then despair. I would say for some people, perhaps even seated here this morning, this explains why you are emotionally more inclined to go up and down and up and down and up and down. It's because your good days and bad days are based upon what you've done or not done for the day. And I'm not saying that we have not done good things or bad things today. I'm not disagreeing on the law of Christ in regards to how we want to honor him. But if anything, that just gives us a reminder to go back to my hope is in Christ. And the problem is for those who live in transactional Christianity, and here's the deal, a lot of you learn this way with God because this is how your parents treated you. Your parents extended love or withheld love because of what you did do or did not do. Make them proud, they love you, they might commend you. Not make them proud, they withhold themselves from you relationally. Or maybe even grotesquely be completely absent from your life. And so you then think God, the heavenly father, is just like your earthly father or mother. And let me just say this with all, without throwing parents under the bus, I am a parent myself. Parents need the gospel too. 
We all stand before the same place needing a savior. And you would be wrong to get your view of God through the lens of your human experience of your earthly parents. But a lot of you get that way. And that's why you feel so uncertain with God. It's because of how commonly you're putting on God the attributes and characteristics of treatment that you receive from your parents for decades. And that's not how God loves. The second thing Galatians has taught us that we need to, we need to pray for our pastors. Now, before you judge me for being self-serving here, let me explain to you why I say that I think this is an obvious implication to this text. And I mean the text of the entire book of Galatians. So back to Galatians chapter one, he says at the end of verse two of Galatians chapter one, that this letter is to the churches of Galatia. Now, just to get a feel for that, let me ask you, go in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, you're like, I'm not familiar with the Bible, Eric. where's Acts? Go to the left of where you are in Galatians. Go to the left in your Bible, it's Acts 14. It's sort of the Gospel of Luke part two. It's the same author, same audience. He's writing the record of the church after the resurrection of Christ and how the gospel is spreading throughout the world at this time. And just for the sake of summary, in the end of chapter 13 into chapter 14, it describes what's going on here. So Paul has been preaching the gospel, and there's been different reactions. Chapter 13 of Acts, verse 48, says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, as many were appointed to eternal life believed. Uh, but then verse 50, and the Jews inside the devout women of high saying, the leading men of the city, and started persecution against Paul and drove them out of their district. So you got, you got mixed reactions. And then we're introduced to chapter 14, verse 1. The first town referenced here is Iconium. And Iconium entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But, verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their mind against their brothers. They're slandering him, speaking lies. So then, as they know that they're about to be attempted life uh, to be killed, they, they flee. Look at verse 6. They learned of it, and they fled to Lystra and Derby. two more towns in this area, Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and in the surrounding country, and there they continue to preach the gospel. Lystra, things get even more radical. They heal a guy. The crowd begins to think they're actually of gods themselves. They're like, no, no, we're not gods. The people want to worship them. They're like, no, no, don't worship up. Worship the one true God. But then, verse 19 of chapter 14, Jews from Antioch, that's chapter 13, and Iconium, the beginning of chapter 14, show up. They persuade the crowds. They stone Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city, the city he just got dragged out of, and the next day he went with Barnabas back to Derby, verse 6. And then, verse 21, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch. Let me put it all together for you. When Paul writes Galatians chapter 1, verse 2, to the churches of Galatia, he's talking about the churches in these towns I just referenced. Churches he planted under extreme persecution, willing to give nothing less than his life so that they would know Jesus Christ, the hope of eternal life. And they get saved. 
Then, here's a kicker. Later on, after he leaves, false teachers come in and say, Paul got it wrong. Paul was motivated in teaching you the false gospel because he was trying to please men. That's what it says in Galatians chapter 2. He's trying to please men. And he's like, please men? If I was trying to please men, someone would explain to me why I got stoned, why I was left for dead. If I'm after pleasing men, then, then why have I in Galatians chapter 6 to have the very marks on my body, the very scars of what I'm willing to give for you? And meanwhile, throughout the entire time as he's correcting and, and really just really laboring with the Galatians saying, who has bewitched you? What has tricked you? What has happened to you? He nevertheless keeps coming back and saying in some form or fashion, I love you. I believe God is going to do a work in you. I trust the Spirit's going to produce in you. He does not lose heart. Which is why, if you notice in Galatians chapter 5, it gives even more depth to the statement, excuse me, Galatians chapter 6 Verse 9, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Why do I say this point here is pray for your pastors? Because ministry is immeasurably a complicated and sometimes difficult, if not thankless, responsibility where the very people who have come to faith in Christ, Antioch, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, who are literally your children in the faith, can so quickly turn on you by just the seduction of a false teacher. Paul both lovingly corrects them and yet encourages them to come back to and believe in the gospel, believing that if they do believe, the Spirit will produce a good work in them. Paul is simply saying to them when he believes himself, he should not be weary in doing good. The reality is that Christians endlessly wander and are drawn away by bad teachings and by bad living. And churches would be well served to have a commitment as a people to pray for their pastors, pray for their elders, that they may be faithful to do the work God's called them to and encourage the Christians even while they work to stay encouraged themselves for what otherwise looks to be a thankless job. Third and final, we not only be aware of transactional Christianity, we not only pray for our pastors. Third, we love each other. If there's anything Galatians has taught us in Galatians chapter 5, to double-click on that in verse 13, we love each other. The church of God is God's gift to demonstrate our love for him by how we love each other. I think there's a very fundamental foundational question that you can ask by auditing yourself, auditing others. How committed am I to loving others who do not love me or do not look like me? That's when the power of the gospel is put on display. When people don't look like me or maybe don't even love me, how committed am I to loving them? as Christ has loved me. When you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, I would say you can see how you respond to it in two different easy ways. They're very hard though, but be aware of this. Providence and persons. Think of, the, think of the fruit of the Spirit here. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. God often brings events in our life, what I'm calling providence. He brings events in our life to bring out in us what's in us. Is there peace there? Is there joy there? Is there patience there? And he also puts people in our life to hold up a mirror to us to show us what's in there. So let me say it to you differently. Sometimes God's greatest gift to you as a Christian is to allow and to bring about in your life difficult people that allows you to testify of not how kind you are, but how good God is to produce in you what's not natural to you. That difficult spouse, that frustrating child, that lazy coworker, that overbearing boss, what an ironic, unique gift that is from the Lord to give you a chance to see what God's producing in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. By providence and by people, we get a chance to see if the fruit of the Spirit is there. And if over time it's not, we'd probably be right to ask, am I really in Christ? Or am I being like a religious Jewish person who knows the law of God, but does not yet really truly believe in the Son of God for the forgiveness of my sins, by which if I did, I would be more inclined to want to love others as God has loved me. What is Galatians about? It's about being a new multi-ethnic family of the Messiah because of our shared faith in the Messiah while learning to love God and others, all done in the power of the Holy Spirit, all done in the power and the testimony of the glory of God. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.